continue then our studies in Psalm 22, uh, thinking particularly this evening of the, the second part of uh, the, the sob before the song. So we're thinking of verses 11 to 21a. Coming to think of the, the, the outer and the upper sources of Christ's sufferings. We thought of the inner sources of his sufferings this morning and this evening, the outer and then the upper sources of his sufferings. Now, boys and girls, have you ever been terrified by a bull, by a dog, or by a lion? Maybe you have, and I would love to hear about it afterwards. Do you want to hear about me being terrified by these? You do, that's great, Alexis, that's great. Well, I remember, and this is, this is the worst advert for jogging, but I remember getting over a fence into a field on one occasion, using a style and beginning to jog through this field. Beautiful sunny day, field was dry. What could go wrong? Suddenly a bull in this field rose up and began charging. Thankfully I wasn't too far into this field. I quickly turned around and got back over this style. The not the 60 of a bull's incredible. And it was only after I cleared the fence that I realized how fast my heart was beating. Another occasion, out jogging, this Rottweiler squared up to me. This was not a pleasant experience. It bared its teeth, foaming at the mouth, scraping its paws on the ground, ready to pounce. It was a terrifying experience. And all the while, the owner's going, you lot touch you, son, you lot touch you. Maybe he's been at the zoo, as we've all, all, all been. But maybe you were there at feeding time for the lions. The roar of those lions just before they got the red meat, you feel it right down in your chest. Though they're caged, the roar is terrifying. That intensifies and persists. The sight of their gaping jaws fuels our fears. And if we can bottle, and you've all got your own <laughs> experiences, I'm sure, if, if we can bottle those experiences of terror, perhaps multiply them a thousand times, we'll begin to understand a little of the state of Jesus here in verses 11 to 21 as he hangs on the cross for our salvation. Jesus here in 11 to 13 and verse 16 uses the images of bulls, of dogs and of lions to describe his enemies, the outer source of his suffering as he depicts this experience for us. Verses 11 to 13 and verse 16, the outer source of his sufferings comes from his enemies before him. Those enemies who surrounded him in Gethsemane and took him to the trial in the Sanhedrin and then took him outside of the city and crucified him and stood there in mockery of him. And he uses these images for us to, to help us enter in to the experience of his sufferings. And it's common in scripture to liken or contrast people to or with animals. 
You remember Jesus called Herod a fox because of his subtlety. Solomon contrasted the sluggard with the ant because of the sluggard's laziness. Satan is likened to the serpent on occasions because of his subtlety. And here in verses 11 to 13 and 16, the enemies of Jesus are likened to these three animals, to bulls, to dogs, to lions. And maybe this approach of crystallizing your suffering in an image, in a metaphor, in a simile is helpful to you. You find it hard to understand or articulate your suffering, your pain, your lostness. But but this idea of a metaphor as Jesus uses here helps you to understand your experience. Counselors encourage those who are struggling to articulate their pain and feelings and sense of lostness to, to concretize it in a metaphor or a simile. That throbbing pain in your head, you might say, is just like a pneumatic drill. Verse 12, the bulls, many bulls encompass me. Strong bulls of Bashan surround me, he says. Bashan, of course, was the fertile region in Israel on the east of the River Jordan. And it was the home of well-bred bulls. They were big, they were powerful, they were famous bulls. And here, the metaphor is that they are encircling their victim. They're ready to gore, to trample, to throw. Here's the strong over the weak. Here's the many, the many bulls over the one. And this is the metaphor that Jesus uses of his suffering. The Pharisees, the Sadducees, the powerful and the wealthy rulers of Israel baying and intimidating Jesus in his trial as they encircle him on the floor of the Sanhedrin building. And then again at the cross, verbally abusing him, belittling him, intimidating him. The bulls of Bashan surround me. And secondly, the dogs, verse 16 and 21. Dogs encompass me, he says, Deliver me from the power of the dog. The dogs mentioned here, of course, are not the cuddly pets that we carry in our handbags. But they are like the, the wild scavenging dogs which roam the back streets of cities like Cairo and move in packs around the dumping grounds. They're wild. They're brutal. And such a metaphor is commonly used in literature of the first century and in parts of the Bible of Gentiles. Wild, cruel, rude, savage. A fitting metaphor for Roman soldiers who scourged Jesus. Who took their long and and rugged Roman nails and, and drove them through his hands and his feet. Who gambled mercilessly for his clothes at the foot of the cross. Saying to him, you're never going to wear these again. And even though the jolt of the cross put all his bones out of joint. They enjoyed the spectacle like dogs gloating over their terrified prey. Verse 17, I can count all my bones, but they stare and gloat over me. Thirdly, lions, verse 13 and 21, they open wide their mouths at me, 
like a ravening and roaring lion. Save me from the mouth of the lion. The lion, a symbol of power. And so is a metaphor, a fitting metaphor of the political rulers who oppose Jesus. The lions are opening their mouth. Save me from the mouth of the lion, from King Herod and from Pontius Pilate's rulers who misuse their power against Jesus. The metaphors or similes, the source, sources of his outer suffering, the outer sources of his suffering. The banning of XL bullies has much support from politicians and people We've had many cases of terrifying experiences of people, young and old, being attacked by them. Esther Martin, 60-year-old grandmother in Essex, fatally attacked by two of them just last week. Can you imagine it? The fear, the terror, the experience. And Jesus says, that's an insight into what I'm feeling. Dogs, the bulls, the lions surround me. What a saviour he is, isn't he? He was mightier than them. He was greater than them. He could have crushed them like we crush a moth. But here he strained himself. He held himself back because he was laying down his life for our salvation. That times were to follow him in this. At times were to turn the other cheek. We're to go the extra mile. We're to restrain ourselves for the greater good. He was greater than these bulls and lions and dogs. But he submitted to the purpose of God for our redemption. And we learn too that sometimes the innocent will suffer. Sometimes the good living will be hated. It's the way of the world. Darkness hates light and and will not come to that light. And remember, there is such a thing as being persecuted for righteousness sake. It's not always for the wrong that you have done that others hate you. Sometimes like Christ were hated without a cause. James Melville uh, grew up with Andrew Melville uh, in in the home uh, with his father, Richard. And James Melville wrote a a wonderful diary which gives great insight into uh, the church at the end of the 17th century in Scotland. But but he records an incident in school. He'd got a pen knife took it along and had it in his pocket and this boy began to annoy him and uh, <coughs> pulled the pen knife out uh, and to, to get this boy away from him he, he kind of jokingly uh, he be, took the blade out and, and began threatening this, this lad uh, <coughs> near his legs uh, with a pen knife and, and the result was that he ended up sticking the pen knife into the lad's leg a few months later he'd sharpened up the pen knife and he tripped over a stone and the penknife went into his own stomach. And he links those two things in his mind, in his diary. Here is my heavenly father bringing judgment to me. Now, you may totally disagree with that. 
he made that connection. And sometimes we try to do that in our suffering. What have I done? How has this come to me? And we torment ourselves like James Melville tormented himself. And he wanted an explanation for this strange providence of prodding his knife into his stomach. Not fatally, of course. But sometimes there is not a clear connection between the two. And certainly here there wasn't. The bulls, the lions, the dogs, encircling Christ without cause. And how did he feel? And, and linger over this just for a moment and allow the love of Christ for you to seep into your heart. You just linger over how he felt about this. How, how he thought of this. What, what was his reaction and his experience as he was suppressed to this, this outer onslaught of abuse and humiliation and rejection? He uses three metaphors to describe his experience of this outer suffering. We think of Granny Martin. We wonder what it must have been like. The fear, the panic, the struggle. We can only guess. We can only surmise. We can only attempt to enter her horrific experience. But here, we're given insight into Jesus and, and how he felt and, and what he thought and, and how deep this rejection affected him. Verse 14, he says, I am poured out like water. In the Bible, water is often used as a symbol of life because in plants and humans, it's so essential for survival. But he's been poured out like water. His life is being poured out. He recognizes the end of his life is coming. Verse 15, my heart is like wax. It is melted in the midst of my breast. The heart, the place of courage, the place of strength. Candle wax melts in the fire. It softens, it runs, it disappears. He says, my courage is failing. My hope of rescue and deliverance and living on is going. It's slipping through my fingers. My heart of courage and optimism and hope it's melting away in the midst of my breast. And the third metaphor in verse 15, my strength is dried up like a pot's herd, like a broken piece of clay pottery dumped and burning under the sun, completely drying out, removing all moisture from it. So Jesus hanging on the cross under the burning eastern sun for three hours was dehydrating. Thirsty, fainting. The outer source of his sufferings and how he experienced them. But it makes him one who can sympathize with each of us in our suffering. Minister colleague uh, had an operation and, and he told me about this and he said it was painful. It was terrifying. It was a humbling experience for him. And he never, ever wanted to go through it again. 
But, but he said with a, with a smirk, he said, three months later, a member of his congregation told him that he was facing that very same operation. And the minister said that in a way that he could never have helped before, he was able to sit down with that member and carry him through that trying time from what he himself had been helped by. This description of Christ, of him being rejected, of him being despised, of him being brought low, of him being humiliated, this outward torrent of suffering coming from those who are all around him, not only makes him our saviour, but makes him our helper. Whatever we feel, whatever sorrow we experience, whatever trouble we go through, Jesus is able to fully empathize with us. Are we feeling physically weak tonight? He's been lower. Is your life draining away? Is your hope going? He's gone further. Your mental state, your spirit, your physical health, whatever challenge and trial and trouble we have, come to this psalm and see Christ your Savior has stood there before you. The assertion of atheists that there is no God because of all the suffering in this world is very shallow. It's very wrong. Because God in Jesus fully understands suffering. Because he has fully experienced our suffering. He's gone down lower. He's traveled further than any or all of us in suffering. His passport in this world has been stamped by every area of suffering. Every physical pain. Every psychological battle. Every spiritual conflict. Each of the 27 recognized emotions. Jesus has experienced and so fully understands. The inner source of his suffering, the outer source of his suffering, and we come thirdly to the upper source of his suffering. And it's this short phrase in verse 15b, you lay me, in the dust of death. Have you ever felt forsaken by God? I have. Jesus has. Perhaps a time in your life when it all became dark and grey. You had no interest in anything. No motivation. No creativity. We knew God loved us. We knew that he was with us. But we felt he was far away. And Christ is here. And he explains for us and for the whole world the ultimate source of his sufferings. He pulls back the curtain and shows us the ultimate reason for his weakness. He lets us into the very mind of God. He cracks the mystery of the cross for us all. He explains the ultimate reason for his 
and anyone's sufferings, you lay me in the dust of death. This is the greatest one-liner. Taste every word. You lay me in the dust of death. You, not referring to the bulls or the dogs or the lions, it's you in the singular, thee, my God, he's saying, my loving and sovereign heavenly Father, it's you who are laying me in the dust of death. Not Herod, not Pilate, not the Sanhedrin, not the soldiers, but you. You lay me in the dust of death. You lay me. Your arms, your power, your purpose, your eternal decree. Just as Abraham laid his son on the altar, just as the offerer laid his sacrifice on the altar, so you lay me in the dust of death. In the dust of death. Not beside, not over, but in, partaking of the dust of death. All his sufferings, he's saying, every drop of them is the plan and will of God for his life. The phrase dust is used by Jesus to relate back to the very beginning of humanity where God said that dust we are, made from the dust, do you remember? And to dust we shall return. Dust and death here are synonymous. We're we're buried into the ground. Our our bodies decompose and return to the dust. You've laid me in the dust of death. He's acknowledging that he's going to die. He's about to die. He's been poured out like water. He's melting like wax. He's drying out like this pot's air. His life is slipping away before his very eyes. The soldiers at the foot of the cross are gambling for his garments because no one survives their execution. But it's God who's laying him in the dust of death. Beyond the violence of the bulls, the savagery of the dogs, the power of the lion-like rulers was the mighty plan of God. Death is the judgment God designed for our sin and Jesus will die that we might live. He will take the judgment of death on himself, that separation and wrath of God upon himself. He will die for our sins. His blood will cleanse us from all sin. We too then are to learn that all our suffering is part of God's plan for us. We can be confident that the bullying in our school, the depression in our life, the broken relationship in our family, not pleasant, but it's not random. Events which seem to be out of control like those wild bulls and those wild dogs and those wild lions. It seems to be out of control and they can do whatever they want. Jesus says it's within the plan and purpose of God. You lay me in the dust of death. 
And what assurance there is for us that Christ has paid the debt that we owed. He has died that we might live. He has gone into death that that threat of death and judgment will be taken away from us. Student debt is piling up in many lives. People are concerned that they are only paying back the interest and not the capital on a 60, 70 thousand pound loan that they've amassed from university. Many of them just hope that the government will have enough of this and write it off after 40 years. That's their hope in relation to their financial debts. But we can have the absolute assurance and confidence of forgiveness and reconciliation to God because Jesus has paid the debt that our sins have accrued. He has been brought down to the very dust of death for us. As we close our reflection on Psalm 22, we, we mention the last part of the psalm. And there's two responses in the conclusion of the psalm for, for us to imbibe. One is complete trust in this suffering Savior. The total being, our total being is to respond to this one who came to die in our place. And three verbs are used in verse 27 to 30 to encapsulate this total response and commitment to the Lord Jesus. Remember, worship, serve. Remember. This addresses our mind and it's calling on us to remember the suffering Savior. To remember him every day. To remember him before our breakfast. How can we forget this incredible, glorious, transformational event? Jesus and his suffering is to be at the center of our mind. Remember, it says. Children are to remember him. Teenagers are to remember him. Adults are to remember him. Remember the suffering Savior. The verb worship addresses our emotions. It calls on us to respond with awe and adoration and affection to this glorious suffering saviour. The AI will never get to this point that robots can be polite and respectful, but they will never worship. It includes emotion, the emotion of awe and trust and love and adoration. And serve addresses our wills, that we will do whatever he wants, that we will obey him completely, that we will remember with our minds, we will worship with our emotions, but we will serve him concretely and visibly in our life, in our home, in our work, in our church. So have you given yourself to Jesus, you need to, because he's the only Savior. The second response is to tell others in the closing verse, proclaim to a people yet unborn 
that he has done it. Done what? Kept his head above water, sailed close to the wind, stared into the abyss, survived to tell the story. What has he done? He satisfied the infinite wrath of God against our sin, so that when we repent and believe in the Lord Jesus, we will be forgiven of all our sin. And one day, we will enter the very presence of the Savior. He has done it. Not you. Not your minister. Not your church. Not your parents. He has done it. He has done it. Not will do it. Not might do it. It's in the past tense. He has done it. It's finished. It's accomplished. It's there for the taking for any one of us. He has done it. He has done it. All that is required by God to satisfy his infinite justice and keep his holy law. He has done it. He has done it. The making of atonement. The work of redemption. So let us leave this psalm trusting with all our being in this Savior and proclaiming his finished work to others.